How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, give you an opportunity to wake up. Uh, Remember any sins you need to confess. Focus your attention so that we can uh, go through a lot of material this evening. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, the opportunity to look into your uh, truth that you have revealed to us, gives us perfect understanding, perfect framework for understanding everything that we face in life. Pray that we would be willing to accept the challenge of understanding your word and applying it, changing our thinking to fit according to what you have revealed. Father, we continue to pray for Dan and for Nancy and uh, and for Nick and Chandra as they're over in uh, Kiev this week and next week for the camp they're running this week. We pray that you would uh, just make this a profitable, profitable time spiritually for them and that they would have tremendous opportunities to give the gospel to many of those uh, children that will be coming to camp this week. Now, Father, we just commit this time to your hands. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Genesis 2-7. At least we'll start there. Genesis 2-7. Now, the subject that we are discussing, that we've been covering since last week on the origin of human life, has to do with two aspects, really. The origin of human life, as described in Genesis 2 with the creation of man in verse 7, and the creation of the woman in verses 18 to 22 but it also has to do with the transmission of life and when life begins. Now, this, of course, as we all know, is a controversial subject in our society. It's controversial, and it is a situation of tremendous uh, emotional uh, distress for a lot of people. And it is amazing how few people, thank you, how few people have any real objectivity when it comes to something of this nature. And we have to look at what the Word of God says. We should never be afraid to accurately analyze what the Scripture says. And tonight I want to look at some what are deemed problem passages by some, because if you ever talk about this with anybody, they'll usually bring up two or three passages. And there's a couple that I will point out that are indeed problems for however, for either position. No matter how you want to take it, it presents problems the way they are normally used. Sometimes things just aren't what they seem to say on the surface, and yet everybody wants to jump to an immediate conclusion that abortion is murder or abortion is wrong or it's not wrong or it's really nothing is in the womb whatsoever. And very few people want to just sit down and look at what the Word says. People become just tend to become just uncomfortable with the truth. So last time I began to take this apart by looking at the words, the key words in Genesis 2-7. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. What we have here is two key words. The word for breath of life, which is nishma. Nishma. And this is the word used again and again of Scripture to indicate life, as I said. N-I-S-H-M-A-H. The Dots under the sh- the what, that word that letter there the sheen is a silent shava, and uh, I've heard it mispronounced so much I mispronounced it last week. Dan caught that. It's nishma. It's a it's a silent what's called a silent shava, and nishma refers to breath, and specifically the breath of life, the breath that God gives. It's analogous to a spark of life, and we saw from 
uh, passages such as Ecclesiastes 12:7 that this comes from God and returns to God. The Spirit returns to God at when death occurs. Now, last time I looked at the key words in Genesis 1:7, Nishma for the breath of life, and the second word is the word for creation, which we'll look at again this evening, is Yatsar. Y-A-T-Z-A-R. And Yatsar has to do with creation in the sense of forming or fashioning something from a previously existing material. It's the idea of shaping something as a potter shapes clay. And, of course, man is formed from the dust or the chemicals of the soil and is often referred to as clay in the Scripture. Now, if we look at the words that are used for creation in the Bible, you have one general word, and that is the word asa. Asa is a general word meaning to do, to make, or to create. It has a variety of meanings depending on the context. But that same thing is true in English. You have a word like to do or to make, and it can mean a number of different things depending on the context that you're talking about, a very generic word. Then there is a more specific word, which is the word bara. And bara is a word that is used, especially in the cow stem, which is your, your basic root stem, of your, similar to the indicative mood in Greek. And God is always the subject of bara in this situation. And so it refers then to a unique activity by God. Then you have another word. Yatsar, which has to do with the formation of something that is physical. It's the shaping and fashioning of something that is, that is physical. And then another word that is used is the word bana, which is the word that is used when God creates the woman, and it has to do with building or constructing something. So asa is used in different passages almost as a synonym for each of these three words. But it is just a generic term for create, so it can be used in that kind of a, a parallelism. Now, as we look at these words, what we see in Genesis 2-7 is that God forms man, first of all, from the dust of the ground. He yatsers man. He forms him. He fashions him physically, and this is talking about the biological life of man. So, first of all, there is the creation of biological life, and then he breathes into man, nishma, the breath of life, and this is soul life. And when biological life and soul life are combined, it is at that point that you have full human life, and not before. And we look through the passages on that. Now, one of the things that people come up with is that uh, they often say, well, the Bible says that something in one verse or another says that, that uh, from the time uh, I came from my mother's womb. And so we have terminology of for birth that I looked at last time. We have two words that are important words. One is the word for birth. One's the word for conceive. Each of these can be used as a noun or as a verb. Now, the word for birth, the verb for birth in Hebrew is yalad, Y-A-L-A-D, yalad, and it means to give birth. It refers to that which takes place at the end of a pregnancy period. There is no noun for birth. For example, if you want to say that so-and-so has been chosen by God from birth, then you have the English phrase, from birth. From is a preposition. The word birth is a noun. So by in that expression, you have a preposition and a noun. There's no verb there. So in Hebrew, there's no noun for, for the word birth. So how did, how did they express it? They expressed it by using the preposition men, M-I-N, which when it's combined with a noun, you usually you loses the n in uh, when it's uh, it, it compounded it assimilates to the next consonant and you have the word mibetan b e 
T-E-N, M-I-B-E-T-E-N, and beten is the word for womb. And we examined various passages on how that is used. And the preposition men indicates that which is outside of the womb. Sometimes you have the phrase, I'm getting crowded on the screen here, but sometimes you have the phrase, babetan. B-E-B-E-T-E-N. And this is the preposition that means in or inside the womb. We're going to see some examples of that uh, this evening. So there is a difference, a contrast between that which is outside the womb or from the womb, once it departs from the womb, and what takes place inside the womb. And the Bible makes that clear through these different prepositions. Then you have the word conceive. You have the verb to conceive, and you have the noun conception. The noun conception is the word haria, and the verb, and you have a couple of other different forms of that, but it's the same basic root stem, and the verb is hara, H-A-R-A-H, and let me see, conception is spelled H-E-R-I-Y-A-H. Now, if you notice the consonants, you have these three consonants are the same, and depending on the vowels you put with those consonants, it depends on whether it's a verb or a noun or whether it's an adjective. So you have the phrase, if you take the preposition men, M-I, and add that to haria, you have Men haria. Now the point that I was making last week is that the Bible is going to give us various the parameters. It never really specifically addresses this subject. I mean, what I mean head on, but it doesn't address a lot of subjects head on. But what it does is it gives you usage that runs throughout Scripture. And the question that needs to be asked is, what are the biblical parameters of life? When does life is life viewed as beginning and ending? And what we see again and again last time in our look through the, through the uses of nishma is that life is there when breath is there. Life is not there when breath is not there. Nishma is the, is the key. The other phrase that we were looking at is the time of are the parameters of life. For example, we talk about from birth to death, or would it be from conception to death? There are people, we looked at, at this last time, that historically in Christianity there are two views, traditionism and creationism. Now it's important to understand these things because, as we'll see tonight, they impinge on other doctrines. Now, in traditionism, you, man is made up of, an, of um, well, as we have been teaching, man is made up of an immaterial soul and a material body. But the first person to articulate traditionism was a church father by the name of Tertullian, and he believed the soul was material. Now, not all traditionists believe that, but very few traditionists understand that that's how the position originated, was that the soul was material, and therefore that both soul and body are transmitted physically. Of course, part of the problem with that is, how does something immaterial get transmitted physically? But the strength of that position, and each of these views has strengths and weaknesses, the strength of that position is it does show an, in a, a unity of soul that all souls are generated from Adam. The problem is, and it's a, it is a, I think it's a fatal flaw, and that is that the soul cannot be transmitted uh, physically. Another flaw would be the passage, the, the issue that we're looking at in a little more detail tonight, and that is, what are the biblical parameters of life? Is it from conception to death, or is it from birth to death? Now, creationism said that no, that the physical body, the physical body is transmitted physically. 
through procreation. However, the soul, the, the immaterial soul, is, tra is created immediately by God and simultaneously imparted to the physical body at birth. And that was the standard view of creationism up until I think the last 20 or 30 years when some who recognize, and there are a number of people within the doctrinal church camp who do not believe in creationism at birth. And so they knew that traditionism was wrong, so they came along and they invented a position that... And that's not always wrong. I mean, sometimes in the process of understanding doctrine, we refine things and come up with, with a little clarification. They came up with a position of creationism at conception. So we have creationism at conception, creationism at some time during the process of the pregnancy, and then creationism at birth. And these are the positions. But the question we need to ask is, what does the Bible say? And it seems to me that if, if the parameters are conception, then we would have the phrase from conception found in the Scripture. There is vocabulary for it. We have the Hebrew noun haria. There's a perfectly good word that is used in numerous places in the, New Te in, in the Old Testament that would it be very easy for, for writers to utilize that word. That is not the word we use. In fact, we never find that verbiage anywhere in the Old Testament. It just isn't there. Now, when I'm teaching you this, I want you to understand that I don't know anybody who's ever pointed this out before, uh, that from conception is not... Not there. I did some research on this uh, a number of years ago when Pastor Theme's book, Origin of Human Life, came out. I did some of the medical research for that book and was doing some, that was the first time I had first gone to work there. And I wasn't really sure and was not convinced of this position at that time. And I did a lot of the background research for that book. And that was the first time I really dealt with some of these things. And I said, well, there's got to be some argument for conception. So I searched through, and by this time that book had already been uh, finished and printed, and I searched through the, New Test or the Old Testament trying to find uh, terminology for from conception, and it's not there anywhere. That information did not make that publication, but nevertheless, it is true. There's no phraseology from conception. What you have everywhere is mebetin. Everywhere you have this phraseology from the womb, which is understood. In fact, if you look at, it's, it's real interesting. If you look at, the, you'll see some inconsistencies. If you look at an NIV, New International Version, and you go through and you look at how the translators for the NIV translated this phrase. In some places, they translate it correctly because it's an idiom. In some places, they will translate correctly uh, from birth. In other places, they will translate it uh, without translating it Id uh, idiomatically and just say from conception. That's because you don't have the same translators cross-checking each other. The NIV, as I've said before, was a translation done by committee, and you would have a committee of maybe eight or ten scholars assigned to a, a section of Scripture, and they would each translate it, and they would come up with their translations and meet in committee and argue back and forth as to which translation would best fit the original language, and then they would vote on it. I had a Hebrew professor, Alan Ross, at Dallas Seminary, had a Ph.D. from both Dallas Seminary and from Cambridge in Hebrew, probably one of the greatest living Hebrew scholars. And uh, Al used to complain at points, say we should have put in the margin that this is the Word of God by a vote of 5 to 4, or 4 to 5, or whatever, because uh, sometimes it's just not that clear. But this is clear. You never have terminology from conception. And if you are going to argue whether a traditionist position or a creationist from birth position that there is full human life in the womb, then you have to explain why the terminology from conception is not used when there's perfectly sound vocabulary for doing so.
What you do find in the scripture is an emphasis on birth and death as the parameters for life. And I closed with this last time. Uh, for example, Ecclesiastes 3.2, there's a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. Uh, Job, um, a couple of verses I don't have on the screen, Isaiah 9.6, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Matthew 11.11, 11, uh, the announcement of Jesus um, or in reference to John the Baptist, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. You see, if conception is the beginning of life, that's the terminology you should find in passages like this. But you don't find that terminology. The only place you find hurrah or hurriah used is in passages talking about so-and-so conceived and was pregnant and then gave birth. Those kind, it's a, it's a standard progression. It's referring to the fact that you might have had, for example, with Rachel or, or Rebecca or Leah uh, in, the, in terms of the matriarchs of the of Jewish race. They uh, finally, in some cases, they were sterile or they were barren, and then they miraculously uh, conceived and they were pregnant and then they gave birth. But you never have the terminology used in terms of parameters of life. Job is filled with phrases like this, man is born, who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil, Job 14.1. Job 15.4, what is man that he should be pure, or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Uh, Job 38.21, you know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Even in terms of common everyday idiom, we measure a person's life not from conception, but from the day that they're born. Job 1.21, naked I came from my mother's womb. This is the phrase, me betten. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken taken away. Job 3.11, why, why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb and expire. He's not saying, why didn't I die in the womb? Why, didn't, uh, why wasn't there a miscarriage? He's talking about death then is implied as not being possible. The death of a person is not possible until after, after birth. So these are the passages of Scripture. Uh, Job 10.18, why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been born, carried from womb to tomb. So from the womb to the tomb is the parameter that's given in Scripture. Now let's look at another passage where this becomes important. That is in relationship to salvation. Turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Jesus is having his discussion with Nicodemus. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, which the name actually does mean a ruler of the people. He's a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus was probably not his actual name. It was probably a title given to him. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, Nicodemus is so confused, he's not even sure what question to ask. Jesus knows what the question really is, so he answers the unstated question, which is, how do we know if we're saved? Under Judaism, you had no assurance of salvation. It was a matter of basically getting enough brownie points with God, doing enough good deeds, and having the, uh, the scale balanced on the, on the side of good, and then you would be admitted into heaven. Uh, so Jesus just cuts right through. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now that, of course, is, was a confusing statement to Nicodemus because in Judaism there were six different ways in which a person could be born again. Arnold covered those when he was here last year talking about the Jewish backgrounds to the, to the Gospels. You could be born again at a bar mitzvah, born again when you were married, born again when a rabbi first uh, was recognized as a, as a rabbi, born again when he uh, became a great teacher. There were these different times when you might be said to be born again. But Nicodemus had done passed through all of these stages, so he just thinks, well, 
how could it be? Must a man go back and enter into his mother's womb and be born? So he recognizes in the conversation what is implicit in this conversation is that we're not talking about conception as the beginning of the spiritual life, but we're talking about birth as the beginning. Now, let me give you a little aside here. In Reformed theology, in pure superlapsarian hyper-Calvinism, conception is distinguished from the spiritual birth. And I remember reading a very well-known Calvinist theologian, and incidentally he was also Prime Minister of Holland at one time, a multi-talented individual by the name of Abraham Kuyper and his work on the work of the Holy Spirit that was written about 120 years ago, late 19th century. And like many hyper-Calvinists, he believes that faith comes after regeneration. And he had an extended analogy in his theology that conception occurs when the Holy Spirit begins to pour forth um, irresistible grace on the unbeliever. Irresistible grace on the unbeliever, and he first hears the gospel. And so you have a blending of the Holy Spirit plus the hearing of the Word, and there is the conception of life. And then this life progresses, and gradually over time, faith is produced. And so eventually someone believes in the gospel, and then they are regenerate. Now, that's an odd doctrine for most of you, because we don't believe that, but that is... That is hyper-Calvinism. They separate uh, faith from regeneration by years. Now, I've heard some that reject that, and there are many that don't believe this at all. But there is one large group within Reformed theology that believe that years may uh, come between the uh, presence of faith and later regeneration. And all of this just shows that when you start trying to make distinctions between conception. They see that even in their, their view, there's no life between conception and birth. It's not till you're actually born again that there's the presence of eternal life. You're not saved even in that view until the point of birth. So the, what's implied in the and, and implicit within this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus is that birth is the starting point of the new life. Nicodemus says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? In other words, there's a distinction between what's going on inside the womb and birth. Jesus says in verse 5, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, born of water being physical birth, uh, the uh, Spirit being the Holy Spirit, uh, born of water has to do also with a picture of cleansing, as seen in the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, uh, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So the emphasis is that birth is what begins the new life, spiritual life. Now, what happens then in pregnancy. Again and again we've seen birth and death, birth and death. I think I've established that. Now what happens in pregnancy? Let's look at this in terms of the understanding the basic biology so we can come to appreciate what God does in the process of developing full human life. First of all, you have an ovum that is fertilized and at that point it becomes a a zygote. The zygote is later going to split, and that will develop into, uh, it'll split and develop into two cells, and you'll have four cells, and then you'll have uh, eight cells, and then 16 cells. And that beginning zygote itself does not have 
all of the genetic information that is necessary to produce human life in the long term. It will pick up and absorb information. But this is going to divide a couple of different ways. You're going to have, uh, after it reaches a certain stage, it is going to become a, a, a cell mass. And at that point, there, some of these cells are going to develop some specialization, and you're going to have part of it break off, and that will form uh, the, the placenta. Uh, other cells are going to break off, and they're going to <coughs> develop into various fetal membranes. Now, the point I'm making here, without getting too technical in all the biology, is that the placenta, this is, a, this is cellular life. It is biological life. And the fetal membranes are cellular life. That's, that's biological life. But nobody would say that that is human life. It is cellular life. It, it, it's biological life, but there's no soul there. You, you have other problems with a soul creation at conception because if this mass splits at this point, one, two, or, you know, one, splits once or splits twice, splits so you have twins or splits into triplets or quads, was there one soul there before? Now what do you have? Or, or You have some problems when it comes to twins or triplets or, or quadruplets. So there are some various problems related to that, but the point I simply want to make from, from looking at the biology is that biological life does not necessarily imply the presence of a soul. There are physical traits there. There's, there's a DNA there's information there that then is going to pr produce a biological life, a physical body that is going to have various uh, physical traits, uh, talents, limitations, and trends of the sin nature. That is part of the sin nature that is passed on genetically from father to children. Now, let's use an analogy. Uh, this may not be the best analogy. I've been trying to work on one for a while because one of the problems that you get into in talking about this is how then, if the soul is created at the time of birth, how does that, how does that interact with these various traits and talents and limitations? The brain... And the body is the home of the soul. So you have a physical home. And that physical home is going to have certain limitations, both in terms of the physical body and in terms of the physical brain. Now, the brain is a machine that is run by a ghost. And that ghost, that immaterial thing that sits in the driver's seat of your brain, is your soul. Now, think about it this way. You take somebody, I'm from Houston, A.J. Foyt was one of our great race car drivers, so we'll take A.J. Foyt. You take A.J. Foyt and you put him down inside one of these new electrical cars that the environmentalists want everybody to drive that doesn't go any faster than about 50 miles an hour, and after you drive about 100 miles, you have to plug it in and recharge the battery again. So we're going to take A.J. Foy, who is an extremely talented and gifted race car driver, and we're going to put him into the body of an electric car. Now, even though, and he is analogous to the soul, and the electric car is analogous to the body, even though he has great talents and abilities, he's limited by what that physical structure can do. He may be able to do more things with it than anybody else can do with it, but he's still limited by it. Then if you take him and you were to place him into another physical structure, let's say a Lamborghini or a Ferrari, he could do many more wonderful things with that body. Now how does this affect volition? Well, the volition isn't affected at all because he could still use that electric car to do 40 miles an hour in a 20-mile-an-hour zone. He could still use that physical body to sin, and he would still be influenced by that. Uh, same way with the Lamborghini. In fact, if he has, in another situation, he may have more options to sin and more opportunities to sin. 
I think this also helps explain, at least in my mind, another problem that we have, and, and I'm certainly open to a lot of help on this, and that is what happens in the brain when you have somebody who has brain damage, somebody who has uh, dementia, Alzheimer's, something like that, where there really personality changes. A few years ago, there was a situation where I believe there was a woman who was injured, I think it was in an automobile accident, and she had complete and total amnesia. She had brain damage, and they had to go in. They had to uh, do some surgery, and she was in a coma for uh, several years. And when she came out of the coma, and she was married before she had the accident, when she came out of the coma, she remembered no one. She remembered nothing. Now, her husband, a great testimony to somebody who loves his wife and is faithful to her, he, she didn't remember him from Adam. She didn't know him from anybody. She, in fact, she had some real personality differences. Now, the question occurs to me, and I don't know that I know the answers to all of these, what if that happened to someone who was a believer? And she may have been a believer. We don't know. What if that happens and you have their spiritual life and spiritual growth and everything's forgotten and they're starting all over? Well, what happens is that person, that soul is still there, but now because the machine they're driving has been physically altered, that limits how that soul can express itself. The union of the soul to the body is one of the most mysterious things. Philosophers have wrestled with it for years. How does an immaterial object control a physical object? How does an immaterial spirit a ghost. I mean, the, the words that are used in the scripture, spirit, wind, breath. How does that immaterial essence control and drive a material physiological structure? And then when you have a stroke, when you have uh, the development of something like Alzheimer's or other forms of, of dementia, how does that affect the expression of the soul? Well, there are many questions there that we can't answer because we don't know what's really going on inside that that person. But I think the best explanation is that the physical genes, the genetic makeup, etc., limits how the soul can express itself, but the expression of the soul is still determined by volition, and the ultimate issue in volition is going to be going to be salvation. So this also helps to understand how the soul that is created and simultaneously imparted by God to the human body is, is corrupted by sin because God is perfect. He can't create anything less than perfection. So when you were born at that instant that you started to take that first breath of life, when you were born, the doctor uh, spanked your bottom, and you took that first breath and, and inhaled Neshaman, the soul life, energized the breath of life. God had instantly created a soul and imparted, and that soul is perfect, but what happens as soon as that soul is joined with a physical, physically, physical body that is corrupt because of Adam's sin, that what you have is a, the soul then becomes corrupt. And the way this works is that you have a physical body, a physical body that inherits from Adam a sin nature. Okay? This is inherited from Adam. Physically and genetically passed on from father to child. It's inherited and you have a, a physical body Whereas in the, in the DNA and the genetic structure of that body, a person is corrupted. Now, at the instant that soul life is imparted to the physical body, at that same time the justice of God imputes Adam's original sin to the genetic sin nature. So that the person is born spiritually dead, but physically alive. God is not the author of sin, because in His justice He is imputing that which has affinity to the sin nature, which is Adam's original sin. And just as the the soul is uh, created in the image of God as Adam's was, and that means there is unity there, so the sin nature comes to the genetic home of the, uh, of the biologically uh, transmitted sin nature, 
and the person becomes a fallen creature and is born physically alive but spiritually dead. So this leads to the next question that we must answer, and that is, what then is the value of the physical body, the human body, in the womb? And for that, we need to turn to a crucial passage in Psalm 139, 13, and 14. In fact, Psalm 139 is a crucial passage for understanding both the omnipotence and the omniscience and, or the omniscience and omnipresence of God, but it focuses on... And Psalm 139 focuses on the development inside the womb of physical life. So turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. This is a Psalm of David. So David says, for you formed my inward parts. Guess what our verb is here? Our verb is, well, let's back up. Before we get to the verb, we need to look at the location. The location is in the womb. You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. And that is babetan, not Mebetan, which is from the womb, but Bubetan, which is in the womb. So we're talking about what's going on inside the womb. You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. This same phrase is used in Jeremiah 1.5. We'll see, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And there it's talking about this same phraseology, uh, Bubetan, in the womb. Now, the word that is used in both of these passages, and Jeremiah 1.5 is one we'll look at in a minute. That's one that people come to uh, frequently raise in this, in this debate. The verb, though, that we have in both uh, Psalm 139.13 and Jeremiah 1.5 is the verb yatsar, which has to do with the formation of the physical body, the physical dust or clay used back in Genesis 2.7. So in Psalm 139.13... For you, that is God, formed my inward parts. What are inward parts? This is a term that is used in the Hebrew to describe the physical organs inside the body. You formed me, my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. Now, what this shows is that God is involved in the formation of biological life. Now, this is done indirectly through the, the, the procreative processes that God set up in Adam and Isha at creation. But even though God uses indirect means to do something, we still speak of the fact that God is the ultimate cause. So that is why the psalmist says, You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. Now, when the psalmist is writing here and talking about his own, his own development inside the womb, he's not just talking about himself. David is not just talking about the fact that I was really formed well. I was handsome. I have uh, tremendous physical properties because you specifically were involved uh, in my formation in the womb more so than anybody else. He's not saying that. He is extrap he's talking about himself as a human being. That God has designed each of us to be the in the, the the have the physical home that would best represent his image and likeness. I've talked about this in the past. The physical body, when God forms the clay that's going to be the home of Adam. He knows that this is also going to be the home of the second person of the Trinity and incarnation, and that this same body is going to become a temple for the indwelling uh, of the Shekinah, uh, the dwelling of Jesus Christ as Shekinah in the church age believer and the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
All of this is in his mind. It's not happenstance that the physical body is formed this way. And so what the psalmist is saying is that the formation of physical, biological life is not some just like getting a wart on your hand that you can remove. This is something that God is involved in. It is significant and it's important. See, some people get the idea that that a creationist position, because the soul's not there until birth, is a position that just automatically means that abortion's just fine and abortion just is nothing more than just taking care of some unwanted um, cells. And that's, you can't go there with Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is saying that, that God is involved in the process. And so whatever God is involved in, if we are going to, to interfere with that, there needs to be very important uh, reasons. And we will deal with that subject before we wrap up this evening. So David is emphasizing the fact that God is, though intermediately involved, he is still involved in the process of the development of physical life, biological life, and therefore physical life and biological life is important. But it's still only biological life. The soul isn't there yet. Now, Jeremiah 1.5. Jeremiah 1.5 is a passage that is often used to support the fact that there's full life in, in the womb. But that's not what the passage says. The Lord is talking to Jeremiah and says, Before I formed you in the womb. So what we have here is a temporal preposition at the beginning. It's talking about before I formed you in the womb. And we have a temporal preposition, babetan, or excuse me, baterum, which is a preposition of time indicating action prior to the event of the main verb, action prior to the event of the main verb. So before I formed you in the womb, so we're going back before conception. We're going back actually hundreds of years into the plan of God, before I formed you in the womb. Now, the verb is yatser, and yatser has to do with the physical formation of the body inside the womb. It is inside the womb, bebetan. So we're talking about what goes on in the womb, not outside of the womb. And Yatsar indicates, once again, that we're talking about physical formation, the formation of physical life inside the womb. So God is saying, before I formed you, I had a plan and a purpose, Yada, I knew you, the cow perfect of Yada. This is a term for the omniscience of God. The omniscience of God, now let's stop a minute and go back and talk, think about our terminology for God. First of all, we have the term omniscience. Omniscience refers to the fact that God knows all the knowable. He knows all the knowable. He knows that everything that will happen and everything that could happen. He knows every potentiality that could ever happen. He knows what would have happened if you had decided to uh, move across the country 30 years ago, who you would have married, what children you would have had, who their grandparents would be, and what colleges they would have gone to. He knows the potential for every decision that you could possibly make in life. God knows everything. In foreknowledge, in foreknowledge, God knows what will take place what will actually transpire in human history. God also, on the basis of his foreknowledge, sets forth a plan. He has a plan and he has purposes, and within those plan and purposes, he assigns certain goals to certain people called their destiny, and because he determines that destiny for that individual before time began, it is called predestiny or predestination. It doesn't mean that God makes their decisions for them. It's not a form of fatalism. What it means is that before time began, God said, there's going to be a guy here named Jeremiah, and I am going to make him a prophet, and he is going to have a unique ministry to Israel. This happened before the conception ever occurred. So it's not talking about Jeremiah is a full person inside the womb. Once again, he's talking about the fact that before... You were even in the womb before I was even 
forming your physical life, before I was even structuring your life in the womb, I knew you, I uh, set you apart, I sanctified you. That means I set you apart. I had a plan and a purpose for you, and I ordained you a prophet to the nations because I knew uh, in God's foreknowledge, he knew he would be a believer, and he knew that he would be uh, giving him, he decided God planned to give him uh, the office, of bestow upon him the office of prophet. So, all of this is to say that there's no mention of what's going on inside the womb. Now we get to the two, what I consider to be the two problem passages, the most difficult passages, and nobody wants to address this. Let me tell you, nobody wants to be honest about these passages. The first passage, Luke 1.15, talking about John the Baptist, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. Now strong drink is not scotch or vodka. Strong drink is beer. They didn't have the ability to distill beverages back then, and this indicates that he had, would be uh, similar to a Nazarite. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is still the Old Testament dispensation, and it is still talking about the, 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 time, the special endowment of the Holy Spirit that was uh, limited in the Old Testament, there were very few people who had this special endowment of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. The builders of the uh, furniture for the tabernacle, uh, prophets, priests, few kings were, had the endowment of the Holy Spirit. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. But none of those who were endued with the Holy Spirit were unbelievers. They were all believers. Now, what you will find people trying to do is say, okay, this shows that in the womb, in the womb, John the Baptist is filled with the Spirit. If he's filled with the Spirit, that go off again. Well, I don't know what the problem is with our projector that turns wants to turn itself off and on all the time, unless we've got a demon in the machine. Okay. It cannot mean... It, first of all, the phraseology in the Greek is ek koilea which is the translation for uh, mebetan. Ek koilea. Actually, it's got an S at the end, ek koileas, because it's a genitive. E-K-K-O-I-L-I-A-S. Ek koileas. Now, this is going to be ek or outside the womb. It's not in the womb. If John the Baptist is filled with the Spirit in the womb, then he's the only person in history who is filled with the Spirit before he is saved. This is a major theological problem. John the Baptist cannot get the Holy Spirit even as an infant until he gets old enough to understand the gospel. Now, I haven't had the opportunity and the resources to run through all of ancient Greek literature to see how this phraseology is used, if from the womb is a just a technical term for from birth, or if it's not used idiomatically as a, in a broader sense for just from childhood. But that would make sense to me. I cannot understand how you can have the, John the Baptist being filled with the Spirit prior to an expression of faith alone in Christ alone. That would violate everything else in Scripture. So that is a problem. This is not talking about the fact that he is filled with the Spirit in the womb, but he is filled with the Spirit from the womb or outside the womb at some point after he becomes saved. Now the next passage that is a problem is ex, uh, I don't have it up there. Is later on in the same passage in, in Luke, in Luke one chapter, Luke one chapter. Or verse 41, Luke 1, 41. This is when Mary comes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth is pregnant with uh, uh, John the Baptist, about six months pregnant. Mary has just become uh, uh, pregnant with the, Lord, the humanity of, uh, the, and the biological life of the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in verse 41, And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe le leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So 
and I'm reading from the New King James Version, the baby leaps in her womb. Why did the baby leap for joy in her womb? Well, if you look at verse 41, it doesn't mention the baby leaping for joy. That's mentioned in verse 44. But notice that in verse 44, this is a quote from Elizabeth. Now, there's one of two ways to handle this. Uh, one has to do with the grammar. In verse 44, when she says, the baby leaped in my womb for joy, this is an N plus the dative of agaliase, which is a word for extreme joy or excitement. Interestingly enough, it's a word that is used in the Psalms to express the joy of salvation. And this, of course, would be related to the coming of the Messiah who would provide salvation. But this particular uh, N construction, the preposition N plus the dative, expresses something that is that marks the circumstances in which the baby in the womb leaped. So the N here plus the dative expresses the circumstances in which the baby in the womb leaped. So this is not saying that the baby had joy, but that the mother had joy. Another way that could possibly be used to handle this is that uh, perhaps this is simply Elizabeth's interpretation of what was taking place, and this, because this is her sentence, it is not necessarily a comment by the Holy Spirit, but it is an accurate recording of what she said at the time, uh, imputing some sort of emotion to the baby. However, the best solution to the situation or the problem in the passage is that it was the circumstances in which the baby in the womb uh, leapt. Now, uh, why is it that the baby leaped? How can this take place inside the womb uh, under the influence of the mother's emotions? So these are the passages people look at. And there's one more, and that's the Exodus passage, which reads, If men fight and hurt a woman, this is Exodus 21:22. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely. Now that word prematurely, I'm, and again I'm quoting from the New King James Version, prematurely is not in the, uh, in, is not in the original. Some versions that you read will translate it, if men fight and hurt a woman with child, so that she has a miscarriage. Miscarriage is not in the original Hebrew. What you have in the original Hebrew is they strike a woman who is pregnant, and incidentally the word there is hara, that word for conceived, is she has conceived, which means she's pregnant, so that she so that the child goes forth, and the Hebrew word there is yatsah. It's not yatser, it is similar sounding, but it's yatsah. And the child goes, literally, comes out. Then it says, yet no harm follows. In other words, the child is born, yet there's no further harm. He, that is, the person who struck the woman... He shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judge decides. Then in verses 23 to 25, it states, But if there is any further injury, and the word further is not in the Hebrew, but if there is any injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. The point is is that if the child is born and then takes that first breath and then dies, then you impose the uh, law of retribution. Or if there's some injury that comes out, the child's crippled or something, then you impose a penalty, and there could be uh, various penalties and payments uh, for that. So this is how you look at these various passages. There are, in fact, the, the uh, interpretation I just gave you of Exodus uh, 21:22 is a very ancient Jewish interpretation of that particular passage. This is not something that has just been generated in the last few years. It's been a concern for hundreds of years as to when life began. Now, just in conclusion, let's talk about some of the attitudes towards abortion. The view of creation, that the soul is created at the point of, of birth, is an ancient view. Several years ago I did research on this and traced it back to the 2nd century uh, A.D., it goes back to the early church. It goes further back in Jewish interpretation. However, neither Jews, Jews never thought of abortion. Why? The, in, especially in the Old Testament. Why? The child might be the Messiah. 
So it, it was not viewed as a position that, that, that seemed to authorize abortion. The early church, it wasn't used that way. They were a, the church that did not see abortion as a solution. For one thing, it often meant the death of the mother. And this was viewed in the Roman Empire at the time of Christ. There were certain laws of the family that were passed that outlawed abortion, not because they viewed abortion as murder, not because they viewed abortion as something that was wrong, but because nine times out of ten the mother died and they were protecting the life of the mother. They wanted strong families. They didn't want a lot of widowed husbands. So what should the believer's attitude toward abortion be? Well, first of all, if there is just biological life there and there's no soul, it can't be murder. It cannot be murder. It may at times be a sin. It may at times be immoral. But there are many things in life that we do that are sins and immoral that are not illegal and not a matter for law. No nation has ever given full full rights to fetal life. Furthermore, now this gets into a technical, logical argument. Furthermore, if, if, if you cannot know, if you cannot know when soul life is present, empiricism won't tell you when soul life is present, Rationalism can't tell you when soul life is present. If you cannot know soul life, if soul life is present, except through revelation, then it cannot be a matter of general law. Why is that? See, God never holds the unbeliever accountable for what the unbeliever can't know. And see, if the only way you can determine when that soul life is present is through revelation, then the unbeliever can't know. He can't find it in the, in the, in the, in the laboratory. He can't weigh it on the scale. The unbeliever cannot know. All he can know is when there are signs of life. He cannot tell when the soul is actually present or not. And so if, if you can't know whether or not soul life is present, then you can't make the unbeliever accountable for it. God never holds the unbeliever accountable for that which is known only through special revelation. One example of that is in the Old Testament. After God gave the Mosaic Law to Israel in Exodus... There are numerous, numerous curses and pronouncements of judgments on Gentile nations. Read through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. There's pronouncements of judgment on Edom and Moab and on the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians and everybody. But they're never judgments for what's in the Mosaic Law. They're judged because they, of their attitude toward Israel, their hostility toward Israel, which is a violation of the Abrahamic covenant. God said, I will curse those who curse you. And because they are idolaters. They have rejected the natural revelation of God's presence. But they're never held accountable. They're never, they're never judged for violating the Sabbath. They're never judged for, for murder. They're never judged for abortion. They have practiced abortion. They never are judged because of... They're, they're, they're not judged for infanticide because they put their children in the fires of Moloch. They're judged for the idolatry that was there, not for the infanticide. They're judged for violating that which is apart from the Mosaic Law, that which was available knowledge for every single human being. So the point that I'm making here is that when we come to all of these issues of Supreme Court decisions and everything else and try to decide whether or not this should be a... Uh, an amendment to the Constitution, the point that is made that I am making is simply this. If, if the presence or absence of soul life can only be determined through revelation of Scripture, then you can't make unbelievers accountable to that. Furthermore, as I stated earlier, abortion was practiced just as slavery was practiced 
in the Roman Empire, and yet the scriptures don't ever mention it. And yet you go to so many churches today, evangelical churches, the number one sin on everybody's list is abortion. The number one cultural sin, probably the number one personal sin, is abortion. And yet that's never mentioned in the Scripture. Why is that not so? What The silence says a lot. The, because this was, a, this was a major, such a major problem in the Roman Empire that it was declared at various times to be illegal to protect the life of the mother. So the, the, what then should our attitude be? Well, as believers, we need to recognize that when a pregnancy occurs, God may be involved, and that God is involved in the process of biological life. And so there may be legitimate reasons. I'm not going to identify them, and I'm not going to talk about them, but there may be legitimate reasons. It's between the individual and the Lord, but there may be legitimate reasons for an abortion at times. But abortion should not be used as a as a uh, birth control method of the masses, which is what's happening today, is that people just look at, well, I'm just going to be irresponsible, and so, and I'm not going to learn anything about birth control or do anything about birth control, and then if I get pregnant, well, I'll just have an abortion. Abortion should not be viewed as a birth control measure. There are many other things that I could say about abortion, but the principle is that if you're going to stop something that God has started, you need to have a responsible reason for it. Now, what about somebody who's had an abortion? Well, it's not murder. It may have been a sin, but it's not a sin that's any worse than any other sin or better than any other sin. Remember, sin is sin. Some sins have greater consequences than other sins, but all sins are handled by simply confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9, and there is forgiveness, and you move forward. There's no reason there's some women who've had abortions and they're just guilty. They feel like they've committed murder and all kinds of things, but that is not what the scriptures teach. So you just confess a sin, you move on, and you recognize that it may not be a sin in some circumstances. And each individual has to be honest with their circumstances, honest with, with the Lord and their relationship. In many cases, I think people may opt out for an abortion when they could carry a baby to term and then put it up for adoption. And that needs to be considered a much more viable option than it is by many people today. Uh, they, they may think they're just being inconvenienced by a pregnancy, but that's their, that was a result of an irresponsible choice, perhaps. Uh, you go through the, the process of the pregnancy, and then you put the child up for adoption. But as I said, each person has to make this decision on their own between them and the Lord. And in some cases, when it's been handled wrongly, poorly, irresponsibly, perhaps immorally or sinfully, then there's confession of sin, but it's not murder and it should not be made a matter of law. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to, to look at these passages, to see the clarity of these passages, and to think through this important issue to, as it is one that faces our culture today and perhaps us as individual believers. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.